0: Spirit Catholic Radio, KVSS, we are Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning. Welcome to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and
1: Chris McGregor.
0: And Chris, today, well, it's an honor to be joined again by Dr. Scott Hahn. Scott is the professor of theology and scripture at Franciscan University of Steubenville, recently appointed to the Pope Benedict XVI Chair of Biblical Theology and Liturgical Proclamation of St. Vincent Seminary, that in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Scott is the author of more than a dozen books, including The Lamb's Supper, Hail Holy Queen, Swear to God, Understanding the Scriptures, and, of course, he and his wife Kimberly together wrote a best-selling account of their conversion to the Catholic Church, *Rome, Sweet Home. And, Dr. Scott Hahn, we are delighted to have you back home here on Spirit Mornings. Welcome.
2: It's great to be with you, Bruce, and also with you, Chris.
1: Thank you so much for coming. I, we're about to celebrate the conversion of St. Paul, and I can't imagine a better person to have around that feast day than you with us on the radio station, Scott.
2: Well, it's a great feast day indeed, and, uh, and I look upon St. Paul as a, as a kind of older brother in the Spirit.
1: He certainly is for so many of us, and I have to personally thank you so much for writing Ordinary Work, Extraordinary Grace. It is a very deeply personal sharing of a very pivotal time in your spiritual life.
2: Indeed, that's exactly what what what, what Opus Dei has been for me, and writing that book has also proven to be.
1: I'm kind of curious why so many people have had such a, for lack of a better way of saying it, suspicion about Opus Dei. Because when I read the writings of St. Jose Maria, it's just so wonderful and so life giving, transformative, that I, I just don't understand why anyone would have concerns.
2: Well, you know, the organization itself was founded back in 1928 by now St. Jose Maria Escriva. And in his words, it was a, a way of sanctification in daily work and in the fulfillment of the Christian's ordinary duties. And so it is, by its very nature, something that is not going to be calling attention to itself. Mm -hmm. It is going to really uh, work for the purpose of sanctifying us in just the ordinary tasks of everyday life. Now, the fact is, it is the Church's first and currently only personal prelature, Mm -hmm. which is a unique status accorded to Opus Dei by the Church's canon law, but it really is something that is established so that ordinary lay people all around the world, apart from any geographical boundaries or just typical diocesan uh, borders, can really get the sort of spiritual direction that will enable us to become saints in the middle of the world, uh, contemplatives on Main Street, as it it were. And uh, I am so grateful for San Jose Maria. I don't... uh, I didn't write this book in order to kind of hold myself up as an exemplar or a paragon, mm-hmm. uh, but just simply to sort of uh, discharge my own debt of gratitude to our Lord and to Opus Dei, because I have found so much grace, and I know so many other people who have found it, too.
0: Well, Scott, you point out that Opus Dei was a place you could feel at home. Why was that?
2: Well, you know, it's, uh, I want to I say this with real charity. But when I was an evangelical Protestant looking into Catholicism, the Catholic faith was just so exciting. It was it was so, uh, it made so much sense out of Scripture. Mm-hmm. All of the mysteries I've been reading and studying in the Bible for years suddenly became more profoundly intelligible, and at the same time, more electrifying. And so I was looking for Catholics who approached the faith, you know, in that sort of spirit. Now... Granted, you have to live that out in the humdrum of everyday life, and I was willing to kind of experience the extraordinary truth of the faith in the ordinary things, but I found so many Catholics who were just simply bored with their church or distracted by the world, you know, or sort of confused by the media and by popular culture. And so as I went in search of this church and as I encountered more and more Catholics, the thing I discovered was that there were certain Catholics who seemed to have their the, the Bible in their back pocket, they seem to be uh, reading it on a regular basis, they seem to have a life of prayer and at the same time a, a, a life of a a supernatural life of doing the natural things for the glory of God and after two or three of these encounters I noticed the common denominator was that they had connections to Opus Dei and so I began to ask questions and I began to sense that as I was discovering the Church as a sort of spiritual Israel Opus Dei was sort of the tribe that I was really going to feel most at home within. And those tribesmen, I the, the, these uh, supernumeraries who were just ordinary lay people getting really good spiritual direction and doing great work in the professions, these were the men who really soar, uh, who served as a bridge to me so that it wasn't just coming into the Catholic faith as a set of abstractions. It wasn't just coming into the Catholic Church as this gigantic institution. It really was uh, coming home into a family where I found kindred spirits who approached the Gospels, the life of Christ, and the ordinary tasks of work and married life, family life, from the perspective of eternity and the divine truth of, uh, of what it means to be children of God.
1: I don't think we can overemphasize the term ordinary because that was really the appeal, wasn't it, of the members? They were ordinary people.
2: That's right. I mean, one was a professor of political science. Another was an economist. Uh, you know, one fellow was a veterinarian. And, you know, they all seemed to approach work with a similar attitude that I had received in my own formation as an Evangelical Protestant, you know, the so-called Protestant work ethic, where you sort of confirm your calling and election not only by hard work but by success. They didn't emphasize the success part of it so much as just transforming ordinary work into prayer and at the same time doing personal apostolate, so that through friendship, through professional excellence, you would share the Gospel without necessarily even using words.
1: We're going to talk a little bit more about that because you explain it so well in the book, but I'd like to give some due to St. Jose Maria, because if it weren't for this man being open to the Spirit, this particular aspect may not have ever seen the light of day
2: that is so true i mean from the very earliest years of his priesthood he was open to a calling that was so unique he was giving a consent to something that was still unknown and every step of the way he was just kind of you know stepping out into darkness and experiencing a divine light you know one of my favorite stories is how he was on a streetcar in madrid and just was overcome by the sense by the reality of god's fatherhood and his own gift of divine sonship, and he just started praying out loud, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And this really ended up proving to be the very content, the substance of what it was he was called to, you know, years before. And, and so it was something that he not only received and gave consent to, but it was something that he grew into. And, and that, to me, is uh, a reassurance because so often I feel unworthy to be a child of God. I feel unworthy to receive the Holy Eucharist. I feel unworthy to receive the vocation to Opus Dei. And yet, if the Founder himself, you know, shows me that it was something that God's grace enabled him to grow into, then hey, I can be patient with my own weaknesses also.
1: Mm, Perfect. As you point out in the book, he taught that all human activity should be restored to Christ and offered to God as a pleasing sacrifice, united with the sacrifice of the cross, united with the sacrifice of the Mass.
2: That's right, and that's, that's a set of truths that's obviously ever-ancient and ever-new. It's as timeless as the Gospel, and yet you never have a time in history where it isn't relevant, and especially in our day. And what I liked about it, too, is that it wasn't just you know the work of the priests. It wasn't just the work of the sacraments. It wasn't just the really grandiose work of, 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 of our apostolic efforts to evangelize and catechize. It was just simply in editing a manuscript or in, uh, you know, sitting up and listening in class or reaching out through friendship to someone who was really kind of uh, uh, distressed and, uh, you know, at sea. And, and I, the more I reflected upon it, the more I realized this is so much like God our Father. He isn't just creating galaxies and maintaining the cosmos. He's concerned about little things. You know, he he creates galaxies, but out of subatomic particles, you know, Mm -hmm. and he holds it all together, not just the big grand universe, but even the little things. And to me, this is how we get to imitate God our Father, by the way we really apply ourselves to the tasks at hand, no matter how menial they seem.
1: As you point out, it's the great cosmic liturgy.
2: That's right. You know, the Cosmic Liturgy was something I discovered in the Scriptures and then in the Mass, but you really live out the Mass in slow motion, you know, when you get home, and when you have to show love to your wife and your kids, and you have to, you know, help them, you know, get ready for bed, and then tuck them in and say prayers, and then, you know, go about uh, the tasks at hand, and, it isn't just in attending the Divine Liturgy of the Mass. It isn't just in praying your rosary together with your wife and kids. It's just, uh, it's not only praying with them, but playing. You know, we just finished a game of Scotland Yard with our kids, and it just seemed to me so obvious that that was sharing Christ with them as much as it was when we were praying the rosary together.
1: You're fun parents.
2: (laughs) I married one who makes it easy to be.
1: What a great game. I had one of those moments when I was reading the book that I kind of hit myself in the head, and I went, oh, that's right. When you talk about the foundation of Opus Dei is divine filiation, talk to us about that, because I think that is something that we might have lost. That's right.
2: Filiation is a, a foreign term for most Americans, you know, but it just simply comes from the Latin term for sonship. And we are children of God, but the reason we're children of God is not just because God has adopted us in some sort of generic sense. It's because He has given to us to share very concretely and specifically in Christ's own Divine Sonship. That is a supernatural mystery, but it is a substantial reality. It is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And the Catholic Church has always made that a central part of its teaching in every area of doctrine. But, unfortunately, many people have lost it, or at least sort of neglected it. And so what I think St. Maria did in really enshrining divine filiation at the very center of our faith and at the core of our daily life was just to remind us that... Uh, Whenever we live, whenever we get up in the morning, whenever we go to our breakfast and go off to work, we are always children of God. We are not what we feel ourselves to be. We are not what other people see ourselves to be. We are what Almighty God sees us to be, and that is His own sons and daughters who share Christ's own divine sonship. And, you know, I must admit, this is not something that just comes naturally to me. In fact, I remember reading... John Paul's great work, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, and near the very end, he's describing the the, the personal effects of, of sin. Or actually, he's describing what it feels like to just wander from God and what effect that has on us. And he says, you know... When we distance ourselves from God, it doesn't make us into atheists. What it does is it transforms us into mere creatures, mm. employees. Instead of a father-child relationship, we begin to experience our daily life in terms of a kind of boss-worker-employer-employee relationship. Mm. And, and I'll admit that this is always my struggle, that I think of myself more easily as God's employee, as God's servant, and he is my boss, and I don't want to get caught you know, and punished for some uh, dereliction of duty. But the fact is, I am a child, and he loves me, and he stoops down to me in my weakness and gives me his strength. But he also empowers me to take the ordinary work that I do, and if I do it with extraordinary love, then he will infuse that with a kind of divine value that it would never possess on its own. But at the same time, I have to struggle throughout the day by setting apart times for prayer, you know, to visit the Blessed Sacrament, to get a rosary in, uh, just to remind myself of this, just to renew my sense of divine filiation. And it's that daily struggle to remember who I am in Christ that uh, I think really defines the spirit of Opus Dei better than anything else.
1: And that's how we come to the, that whole aspect of our work, how we work and live out our lives, because as you point out, Genesis depicts God himself at work.
2: That's right. You know, our little, our little corner of the universe holds together... When we imitate God and we care for the little things, just as he holds the subatomic particles together along with the galaxies. So likewise, when we fill out our forms accurately at work, when we put the cap back on the toothpaste, when, we give, when I give Kimberly a, you know, a kiss goodbye and just tell her in front of the kids how much I love her, when we make time to show our love for our kids later in the evening, all of those little things end up becoming divine work. And it's something that God enables us to do, but ultimately it's what God himself is transforming. And you can just see this, you know, through friendship. Uh, I think I came to greater a greater experience of truth through friendships than simply through scholarship. Mm-hmm. When I look back on my life as a teenager, and I was in trouble with the law, and I came to discover the truth of the Gospel in Jesus Christ, it wasn't mostly through books. It was mostly through people who incarnated the gospel, who showed me what it means to, you know, to be a child of God. And, and that is something that we are privileged to do, you know,
1: 24-7. Oh, that's wonderfully said. I think it's so important when we think about work, as you point out, it's something that we do so that we might worship perfectly. And we worship while we work.
2: That's right. And, you know, what it does is it extends the liturgy of the Eucharist into every nook and cranny of our lives. You know, St. Jose Maria used to emphasize how all of us need to have a priestly soul, and yet at the same time, a lay mentality. And those two things often strike people as a, as a kind of contradiction. How can you have a lay mentality and approach the world and be at home, and at the same time maintain a priestly soul, And yet, I knew the Bible well enough to recognize exactly what he was talking about, because from the very beginning of of the Bible, way back in the Old Testament, God is calling his people to be a kingdom of priests. Now, kingdoms are set up in the secular order of political and economic life, but the priesthood is established in the liturgical and the sacred. And yet, these weren't hermetically sealed off compartments. These were more like permeable membranes where you take your labor of six days and offer it in the liturgy of the Sabbath on the seventh day. Mm -hmm. And this is the way you would order your life. And not only a work week, but also a work day or a particular afternoon where you face a lot of tasks and you're tempted to kind of procrastinate and just do what you want to do first and then maybe what you have to do if there's time enough. But the, uh, the sacrifice of the liturgy is actually lived out through the self-denial of our work from hour to hour. And this, I think, is something that really transforms our own mentality on the job into an extension of the very mystery of the Mass as we celebrated, you know, in the, in the Church, the sanctuary.
1: Mm. It's yeah. as though you have a Sabbath every day. That's right. Or a little, a little bit of Sunday. <laughs> yeah. no, a little bit of Sunday
0: every day
2: indeed and that's what the resurrection is about we we celebrate in the new covenant not on the last day of the week saturday but on the first day of the week because in the old testament they worked and waited and wondered when the messiah would come to give them their rest but in the new covenant even before we're born you know much less getting up on a monday and going off to our our jobs even before we've been created god has already sent his son to achieve our rest and gain our salvation and so on the day of resurrection, we celebrate the, the Lord's Day, as it were, the Sabbath of the New Covenant, and that permeates everything we do the rest of the week as well, or at least it should. Yeah. Uh,
1: you asked some pretty important questions that you later answered, but I'm going to pose them to you now, if it's okay, Scott. Sure. You say, if Jesus restored the original plan for work, why do our labors today still bear the marks of Adam's sin? I mean, why is there sweat and frustration and tedium and failure and all those kind of things when we do enter into that work?
2: Well, indeed, you know, Christ uh, experiences for our salvation the curse of Adam's sin. But he doesn't do it in a way that is a substitution so that, you know, here is Jesus, and he is suffering so we don't have to. Here is Jesus, he's dying so we don't have to. Mm -hmm. Here is Jesus, he's obeying all the commandments, so while it would be nice for us to do so, it isn't really necessary. That, I think, is a non-Catholic understanding that's very widespread, a substitutionary notion of Christ's work. But the, the Catholic view, and I think the biblical view, is much more of a participatory or a representative approach to Christ's work. That is, Christ obeyed the law, not so that we wouldn't have to, but for the purpose of giving us his spirit so that finally we could keep the commandments. Christ worked hard and even suffered not to exempt us or spare us from hard labor and suffering, but to endow our suffering and our labor with a redemptive value and a spiritual force that it would never possess on its own. And ultimately, our obedience, our work, our suffering, and even our death and resurrection are the ways in which we participate in Christ's work, who didn't come to substitute, but rather to represent us and to empower us to kind of experience all of this for ourselves. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit in order to reproduce in us his own work, his own obedience, and yes, his own suffering, death, and resurrection as well. That suddenly transforms our understanding of everyday life. We can see more clearly why we're called Christians, little Christs literally, mm-hmm. because we are called out to live the life of Christ in the little things, you know, in the middle of the world.
0: Come follow me.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I, I love what uh, the quote you have from Mother Teresa, God doesn't ask us to be successful, just faithful.
2: That's right. And, you know, part of that, I think, is, you know, I I drew, I, I drew a bit from St. Therese as well, because in, in researching this book, I discovered just how much St. Jose Maria drew from St. Therese and the, uh, the Little Way. And St. Therese emphasized the importance of humility, like all the saints. Humility is that virtue without which we cannot grow in holiness. But it, she describes humility in a beautiful way, and that is the patient endurance of one's own weaknesses and faults. It isn't like we're rationalizing our sins away. We want to get rid of them, but we realize that God is doing so slowly. So that we don't go, we, 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 we don't grow proud of how virtuous we've become, you know. But the patient endurance of my own weaknesses and faults, this, I think, is also a way in which we can experience faithfulness, even though we don't always feel ourselves flushed with success, that, wow, at the end of this day, I am truly a canonizable saint, you know. <laughs> I, I end very few days that way, and the days I do end that way are very dangerous, you
1: know. <laughs> Oh, perfect! I, I think, as uh, Saint Jose Maria said, the Church is present wherever there is a Christian who strives to live in the name of Christ.
2: That's right. It's in the
1: striving, we, isn't it?
2: Indeed, we want we want to live our lives so that people look at us as, as as sinners who are being saved by the fatherly grace of God. But we also want to have lives that you know people can look at and say, "This man, he, he's 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 studied the Gospels. He is really familiar with the life of Jesus." Mm.
0: Right. Uh, Scott, talk to us a little bit about his concern for uh, what is called professionalitists.
2: Oh, yeah, I
1: like that term.
0: Yeah.
2: This, I love that term, professionalitists. We would probably call it and recognize it by the name workaholism.
0: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: that is the spirit that uh, really creeps in very subtly into even the the, the most devout Catholic Christians when we really forget to pray, or when we pray in a spirit of servility and not affiliation. That is, when we pray more like employees than beloved sons and daughters. That professionalitis is something that, uh, you know, a lot of people actually confuse Opus Dei's spirit with that sort of professionalitis because of how much emphasis is placed upon sanctifying ordinary work. Mm-hmm. And so people could easily get the misimpression that oh, I see you're baptizing workaholism. Uh, on the contrary, what what Saint Jose Maria offers is the antidote to this sort of workaholism uh, because you recognize that work is an important part of becoming a saint. But the spirit of the work that we perform must be the prayer of the child of God. It must be through the sacraments and by the Spirit, with the help of the saints, in imitation of Christ, always very close to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But no matter where we are in the world, no matter how humdrum our tasks may seem, you know, just as Jesus, Mary, and Joseph lived for literally years and decades, the ordinary family life and the ordinary work of the carpentry and that sort of thing, so we can endow our natural work with this supernatural power and at the same time just stick to the details and carry them out with the the, the best of our abilities. And so we always begin and end with prayer. We always really begin and end with worship. And so we see, just as the Sabbath was the culmination of the work week through worship and rest and prayer and praise, so in the New Covenant, Sunday is that, is that uh, divine rest, that supernatural grace that reminds us as we're getting up and as we're driving off to work that we are children of God. We're not just employees. We're not just middle management. We're not the boss. We're the little children of God who... to imitate our Father in whatever tasks we face this day.
1: Uh, Scott, I have a a little confession after reading the basic plan, just how that that structure to kind of get your life in order to get spiritually fit. I had more time. I had more energy. It was extraordinary to me because the basic plan for someone who is involved in Opus Dei, they're the spiritual gifts that have been passed down to us through the generations in the Church. Everything from morning offering to daily Mass, to the Angelus, to the Rosary, I mean, these are things that the Church has been calling us to practice for centuries.
2: That's right, and it's not anything that's really, you know, idiosyncratic or peculiar to Opus Dei. Uh, I think in, in, in some ways, though, what's unique is how you're finding, you know, cab drivers, as I've met one, lawyers and professionals, professors and and others who are doing this in a way that in the past was more often associated just with the priests and the monks and the nuns.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But you know, when you do uh, structure your, 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 your life, your days, your hours with that sense of prayer, with the rosary and with the angelus and with the morning offering and with the morning and afternoon or evening prayer. Uh, It isn't all that much, but it transforms everything else you're doing and enables you, as you put it, to get more done in seemingly less time with a sort of divine assistance. You know, I can tell you that there have been days where I have fallen short, where I've kind of skimped on my prayer, or I have, you know, forgotten to do this, that, or the other thing. But if you had a videotape of those days, you would see me sort of like... Uh, like a car that's stuck in first gear, burning through a half a tank of gas, and yet only covering a mile or two. It, mm-hmm. When I get into the higher gears of holiness, then I'm able to cover much more ground with much less fuel with God's help. And that's what he wants to convince us of, that you know we can go through our days as mere slaves, or we can live out our lives as sons and daughters of the Most High. And we get so much more done in seemingly less time when we really prioritize prayer and the sacraments and that sort of apostolate that comes through friendship and professional work.
1: Even at 45 now, I'm beginning to understand, oh, this is why they call them spiritual exercises, because it's I can do exercises to help my body, and I feel better, and I feel stronger, and I am capable of doing many more things. Spiritual exercises give us that and so much more
2: if only we could figure out a way to kind of market a spiritual diet. you really? (laughs) You have physical exercise. We need spiritual exercise to be spiritually fit, you know, and not just, you know, in terms of what we eat at night or where we exercise in some sort of parish spa, but we need to understand that just as God gave to Adam dominion over the earth, so he's given to us a little bit of dominion as well. Our workspace, you know, our... Uh, Our altar is our desktop, our workstation. You know, the ditch that we dig, the diaper that we change, the pot that we stir, the bed that we share with our spouse, all of this is sanctified by our offering hands, which are Christ's own hands, to see our lives as an extension of his own sacrifice. Uh, and, And again, this is extraordinary grace, but it's always going to be experienced through our ordinary lives.
1: Is that, in part, what holy ambition is about?
2: It is an, uh, an essential part of it. Uh, holy ambition is something that uh, you hear about in Opus Dei, and it applies to different areas of life because it also applies not only to your interior life and to your everyday work, but to your apostolic aspirations as well. Uh, I have, uh, you know, I have a longing to share our Lord and our Lady with with more and more people, and not just with Catholics who've sort of, you know, fallen into a a spiritual nap, but with non-Catholics, and even non-Christians as well. And this, this holy ambition gives to us a sense that even in our littleness, or precisely because of our littleness, God wants to accomplish great things through what we do. And it won't necessarily by be, you know, it won't happen by filling a stadium with 40,000 people for a crusade evangelist. It will happen through the lunch that we set up, uh, and an appointment for dinner, or just the, the time that we spend Uh, with friends on weekends and this sort of thing. We can see this divine life spreading through our own ordinary human activities, but I think we really have to set higher goals. We have to see that God is able and and desirous to accomplish greater things in our everyday work than what we plan just by writing down the to-do list.
0: Mm, Sounds like St. Therese. (laughs) It sure does.
1: What I really like about this is that when you start to do those little things. It's every little thing, and that can be translated into how you are a friend to others. And friendship and that whole apostolate aspect of Opus Dei is so important.
2: It really is. I remember hearing for the first time this new way of thinking about doing apostolate, because I was preoccupied at the time with how do we reach them? You know, they're lost, they're they're astray, they're forgetful, they just are so negligent or You know, they're rejecting the gospel. They're in the middle of the world. All of these people that we have to reach for Christ. And my spiritual director just reminded me that it isn't the case that we're going out to reach them. It is the case that we are them. Mm -hmm. And that God is reaching us. And if God can reach us, then there's nobody beyond the stretch of his arm. I remember when I was first coming into the church more than two decades ago, and I said to a friend of mine who was a professor and a supernumerary in Opus Dei, you know, I said I just read the statistic where, you know, this, this vast number of Catholics I think it was around seventy or eighty percent didn't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, his body, blood, soul and divinity. And then this other statistic about how many Catholics don't accept the church's teaching on humane vitae and artificial birth control and openness to life and And I was just coming into the church, and so I wanted to kind of shake him up. I'm like, what are we going to do about this? And he looked at me and he said, Scott, you know, we can bemoan the fact that there are a lot of Catholics who don't believe this. Or we can look in the mirror and ask our Lord, how in the world do I believe this? Mm. Lord, how have I come to believe in your real presence in the Eucharist? How have you convinced me that the Church's teaching on Humanae Vitae is true and authoritative? And God, if you can get through to someone like me, then again, you know, nobody's beyond your reach. Help me help you reach them. And I just loved that sort of supernatural take on the natural condition we find ourselves in.
1: It is amazing, and it does come down to that heart-to-heart, those moments where you're able to look at someone and give them your all because you're in that moment with that person, and then you go on to the next thing. That's right. But if you do that, it goes back to that we are God's children and that we are called for each and every encounter and each and everything we do, so we can offer all of that back up to the Father.
2: You know, prior to Vatican II, all of this sort of spirituality was often, in fact, usually associated exclusively with priests and religious, so that priests, monks, and nuns were the only ones who could really be expected to be contemplatives in any realistic sense. Well, this was this was never a part of the church's teaching, but it seemed to be the common understanding of many so called experts. St. Jose Maria came along and really challenged them. There were others, too. In fact, there were priests themselves who recognized this. Uh, John Paul's mentor, Father Garrigou Lagrange, the great Dominican theologian at the Angelicum in Rome, was also another theologian who kind of rattled the cage and shook people up by saying, No. Ordinary Catholics, every baptized layperson, is not only called to become a saint, but is also required to find a way to be a contemplative in the middle of the world, to contemplate the Word of God through daily prayer and mortification, and, you know, just by consecrating whatever we're doing for the glory of God.
1: It's that whole idea of not penetrating the world, but realizing we are in the world. We don't have to, the Church doesn't have to penetrate it, it's already there.
2: That's right, and we, we've got to get out of this mindset that it's us versus them. You know, we, we, we have to be honest and realistic and say there's a lot of sin out there, but we also have to be humble enough to say there's a lot of sin in here. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. And if God is working in my life, then again, who am I? am I? Am I any better than other people? And if I am, it's only begot by God's grace, and it's that same grace that God wants to channel through me to other people.
0: Yeah. Well, Scott, we talk about channeling that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the marriage vocation. I mean, you speak a bit about that, too, that it really isn't just satisfaction for the heart and senses. Also suffering, it has a couple of sides like a coin. That's
2: right. You know, it's interesting because marriage itself is considered to be a sacrament, obviously, by the Church, but it was always looked at. You know, it wasn't treated that way practically by a lot of so-called experts. Mm-hmm. Saint Jose Maria came along and shocked a lot of people when he referred to the marriage bed as an altar. Uh-huh. You know, I remember when uh-huh. I first came across it, I wondered if it wasn't a typo. You
1: know?
2: <laughs> and I, I asked somebody, and he said, "Oh no," and you know, you're not the first person to wonder. Uh, but the marriage bed is the place, of course, where the covenant is renewed. And, mm-hmm. and that is where you are to love in a way that is truly life-giving. Mm-hmm. And it's a sacrifice. It's not, just a, it's not just an act of pleasure. It's an act of self-giving. And it's something that you have to live out, not only when you wake up, but when you raise those children, when you work together and you compromise on, you know, how to spend the, the few hours that you've got in the day, how to spend the, the energy that you've got that seems to be, you know, too inadequate. Uh... But, you know, marriage is our vocation to heaven. I remember seeing a video once where a man was asking St. Maria, you know, just uh, for a little bit of help for his vocation. He wasn't sure if he was called to be a, a supernumerary member of Opus Dei or not, and, uh, and, 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 and San Jose Maria just sort of interrupted him and said, uh, are you married? Yes. Well, what's your wife's name? And I forget what her name was, but let's say it was Alice. Mm-hmm. He said, that is your voca- Your vocation has a name. Her name is Alice. Mm-hmm. And, and it, what he did was to impress upon this guy that besides, you know, thinking and praying and discerning the big issues about spiritual things like vocation, You've got to recognize that your marriage is not only a sacrament that you celebrated a few years ago when you first went through the wedding, it's an abiding reality. It is the context in which you are going to become a saint and help her to become one also, and most especially when it comes to, you know, putting down the lid or putting the cap back on the toothpaste, you know, and and then putting your dirty clothes in the hamper. and All of the little things become expressions of the immense love of God for us. And I, and I found that nothing renews romance like remembering to do those little things with
0: lots of love.
1: Right. Mm, well said.
0: Yeah, and I think, Scott, too, I mean, you, you described uh, the, the moment when you first kind of got Opus Dei. You were talking about, uh, you know, your love for the Church increasing, having some great theological arguments with Kimberly. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for some of those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you, if you were there. You might change your mind on that. <laughs> well, and finally, you got uh, some counsel from a friend in Opus Dei who suggested you turn down the apologetics and turn up the romance. and And that really kind of turned a corner for everything for you, didn't it?
2: That's right, and it was funny too because the same line came from a priest and from a layperson.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: and they were both concerned for me and for Kimberly and for our marriage and our family and our kids and all the rest. But they were just trying to help me to see that the way grace is communicated, supernatural, extraordinary grace is communicated by natural, ordinary friendship with my with my spouse. And so this idea of of turn down the argumentation and turn up the romance, or as the one guy said, you know, (laughs) beef up the romance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hear, hear.
2: And he was saying, you know, take her out on a date. You know, and he said, if you go on two or three dates and you don't bring up any theological argumentation, do you realize what a message you're sending and how loud she's going to hear it? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, he's right, but still she needs to... But after three or four dates, he proved to be far more right than I could have ever imagined. And I think it's so often the case that when we're out to kind of set each other straight, we become defensive and resistant. But when we're out to kind of live out the unconditional love that God shows us and the patience with which he deals with us and our weakness, when we live that way towards each other, suddenly we want to change just to kind of really please the other person and to deepen our love in practical ways.
1: And that really yeah. fosters unity. The fact that Saint Jose Maria would later actually merge his name to demonstrate he wanted that unity of family. So, because it was originally Jose Maria, but then it became Jose Maria Joseph and Mary.
2: Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it,
1: is. It, is. it is. Yeah,
2: and I would say that kind of un- unity is what uh, his teaching and his own spirit enables. I can't tell you how many couples I've met who've experienced that sort of unitive power in their own marriages and their own lives. Unity of life is something that is always stressed so that you don't just compartmentalize your life as a husband and then as a father and then as a worker and then as a neighbor and then perhaps as a voter or as a school board member or whatever, but you really see yourself as a child of God in all of those different activities. Mm
1: And he is someone who had to demonstrate great patience and prudence because I just think it's ironic that he's on a streetcar, Mother Teresa's on a train. What is it about those moving transportation vehicles that gosh, I think <laughs> they
2: remind us that we're pilgrims. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but
1: but yeah. he he had this wonderful vision. He actually saw not unlike what Mother Teresa experienced on the train, and yet he had the patience to wait because at that moment the church did not have a mechanism for a movement like Opus Dei to be able to take root.
2: That's right. They didn't have the legal mechanisms in place. It wasn't really until the 1983 Code of Canon Law was promulgated by Pope John Paul II. I mean, there, there hadn't been a, a Code of Canon Law promulgated since around 1917, 1918, and there were really no legal or canonical procedures in place for the vision that God had given to him. And then the personal prelature, that whole new legal category that was developed fit perfectly with what god had shown saint jose maria and i'm so grateful too and i'm also grateful for the fact that there is a, such an important place for lay people you know mm-hmm. super numeraries uh... just married people who who don't make the commitment to celibacy uh... And i'm grateful for the numeraries who do make that commitment to celibacy because i've experienced how they're more available for the the kind of dedicated apostolic work that our spiritual direction requires but most supernumeraries like me are married our primary apostolate is with our families and then in widening circles beyond the home neighbors co-workers friends you know clients customers whatever you know the guy we're playing with basketball in the court you know mm-hmm. but this uh, this vision of a uh, a, a tribe within the Church that would really extend beyond the diocesan boundaries, and it, would be not, it wouldn't be a monastic community. I just think this was itself a divine inspiration.
1: I just think it's a beautiful reflection on the, the spiritual life. He wanted so badly, didn't he, that the cl- Catholic lady to discover their dignity and assume that responsibility that comes from baptism.
2: That's right, that's exactly right, and to live it out and to extend it to others whether or not they would ever end up having a vocation themselves to Opus Dei. It isn't a recruitment, uh, it, it isn't a spirituality that has much to do with recruitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it was funny, in my experience, I, I never sensed any pressure. I just sensed the kind of opportunity to get closer to our Lord, you know, through my friendships and through the spiritual direction. You know, and uh, ironically, I was a cooperator in Opus Dei about six months before I even became a Catholic. (laughs) I found as a doctoral student in theology, as a former Protestant minister, discerning my way into the church, I needed help. I needed spiritual direction. I I needed to learn how to say these prayers and to live this life and really prepare myself as a husband and a father to transition my family. Whether or not they'd become Catholic was still unknown to me at the time. But I just saw myself in such need And it was really practically like the only game in town that I could play as a layperson and a convert, and take the scriptures, the sacrament, work as well as worship, and combine it all in a way that was really practical.
1: And then to have at the very heart of it all the Eucharist.
2: That's right. Oh, at the very heart of it. The source and summit of our lives. And that's true, of course, for every Catholic Christian. And that's what I think a lot of people have found in looking into Opus Dei, whether or not they're called to be numeraries, supernumeraries, cooperators, associates, or whatever, even if they have no calling to any sort of membership, nevertheless, what they discover is that they share the calling to divine filiation and to a Eucharistic life and to this ordinary work and extraordinary grace.
1: I found myself reading uh, the writings of St. Jose Maria and. What he has to say to us is just a spiritual father to children about God and how to be close to him and how it can enhance your life. It really is like the Eucharist transforming
2: and you know it 's helped me as a father because you know it 's one thing to try to instruct your kids it 's another thing to pass on an instructor to them. Mm-hmm. my oldest son michaels twenty four now and he 's a cooperator and you know, I think he understands the spirit of Opus Dei and the teaching of St. Jose Maria at least as well as me, and arguably better, because, you know, I came at it with so much baggage and so, you know, many different influences, but from uh, elementary school on, he was reading The Way, The Forge, The Furrow, and these other mm. things that St. Jose Maria had published, and I just get a sense from my conversations with Michael and my son Gabriel as well that, uh, he is kind of helping God father my own sons and, and my daughter Hannah as well. and I mean, that kind of transfer, that kind of gift uh, from heaven through a saint into my own home. I mean, how can you repay that sort of debt? What an what a, what a incredible grace it is. Yeah. Amen.
0: Well, somehow, I think a hearty thank you would be appreciated by any of them too.. <laughs> 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 yes, yes. Well, Scott, we want to thank you so much for being with us again. uh, The book, Ordinary Work, Extraordinary Grace, My Spiritual Journey in Opus Dei. Well, Chris, wouldn't you think that if uh, work is indeed, as Scott points out, an earthly image of God's activity, and thus the worker is an image and likeness of God, we've had some real heavenly work going on right here. I think so.
2: Amen and amen. And Bruce and Chris, I want to not only thank you for the time that we've had together, but also for your apostolic work, and for the lived example of your own marriage, because I think you are reaching far more people than you could possibly realize.
1: All for God's glory. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the we could for be that. nothing sure. without our Lord, I tell you. And we just appreciate the work of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. It is an extraordinary gift to the people of God, and SalvationHistory.com, a website that should be on everybody's bookmark, mm-hmm. and visit often. We just, we thank you for making that available to everyone.
2: You're welcome, and I know you know my best friend and and, and co-worker, Mike Aquilina. He is a a VP, and he is just such a fellow apostle. And uh, together we are having the time of our lives, and Kimberly as well. She's working very closely at many different uh, tasks with the St. Paul Center. And we just can't believe we get to do
0: this. Well, I know someone here who's positively giddy about uh, joining you in Rome this May, too.
1: I am. I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I just have to say something to you, Scott, about Mike Aquilina for us. He has spent so much time with us and our radio audience that he is that epitome of friendship because he spends so much time, he's so sincere, he's so giving. I've talked to so many of our listeners that have heard him. That they feel he's talking directly to them, and so that just it just passes right for, right through the airwaves, right into their cars, or their homes, and he has broken open the world of the fathers and of that gift of the church. We can't say enough nice things about Mike. Well, you home.
2: should know him in real life. I tell you, he already had a natural gift of friendship, but what he has done to supernaturalize that as a, he's also a supernumerary in Opus Dei as I am. And he just lives out, he exemplifies the spirit of the work so well. And as you get closer to him and you get to know him better on a daily basis, he's going to kill me for saying this. But I tell you, I don't know anybody who lives out the spirit of Opus Dei more convincingly, more compellingly
0: than Mike.
1: Yeah. Well, we thank you both for just the witness that you've given us and the courage to be able to take each day and try to do the best that we can.
0: You bet. Yeah, And
2: again, we're having the time of our lives trying to.
0: Yeah, how it works for us. And and just one more little uh, run here at things. Thank you so much for breaking the bread each week. Uh, those are wonderful, wonderful radio vignettes, and our listeners love having the Sunday Scripture broken up as only Dr. Scott Hahn can break it out for us. I enjoy
2: it so much. I thank you for, for sharing it with others. All right.
0: Thanks, Scott. We appreciate it. God bless so much, and thanks for the time.
2: You are so welcome. God bless you, Bruce and Chris. Take
0: thank care. you.